rocking across the USA every Saturday, 6 to 9 Eastern, 3 to 6 Pacific. Welcome aboard, gang. David Essel in the box. Of course, David Essel Alive, celebrating 23 years on the air as America's positive radio talk show, broadcasting live out of Studio E in Los Angeles, California, with Nathan and Trish by my side here. Proud to be part of the iHeartRadio Clear Channel Premier Radio Network. And uh, just nice to be in the box with you on this great Saturday. An amazing show coming up. I'll tell you who the guests are. 1-800-548-TALK. 1-800-548-TALK. Anytime during the show, call us. And also text us anytime at 941266 7676, the text number 941-266-7676. This in around 10 a.m. this morning, my husband wants you to tell us why I can't just have one drink at night. I start with one and end up with five, six, seven or more before going to bed. He cannot understand why I just can't drink socially. We're going to be able to tell you the answer to that question in a moment. Let me go into the guests because this is a rockin' Saturday. Every Saturday is on fire. This one is no exception. Keith Strop, who is the founder of Normal, the marijuana legalization lobby, uh, an author of the book, It's Normal to Smoke Pot, 40-Year Fight for Marijuana, Marijuana Smokers' Rights. We're going to be talking to Keith in just a little bit. And remember, President Obama, that amazing statement that he made about, what, a month ago in USA Today, where that he was quoted as saying that marijuana is safer than alcohol. We're going to talk to Keith about a whole bunch of stuff. Excited to have him on. Dr. Bernie Siegel is back, one of my favorite MDs. Bernie is back with us, author of the book, The Art of Healing. We're going to talk about near-death experience and past lives. Are they real or is it a figment of our imagination? Bernie is going to be back. He rocks. Rachel Luna, the uh, author of, of the, the best-selling book, Successful People Are Full of Crap. <laughs> I love the title. How to Ask for What You Want Out of Life. We're going to have Rachel teach us how to ask for everything you want out of life. And then Christina Rasmussen is coming on, author of the book Second First, Live, Laugh, and Love Again, a best-selling author talking about how to come back from loss, loss of a loved one, loss of a child, loss loss of um, a dream in life. Look very much looking forward to Christina being part of the show here, too. one 800 548-TALK, 1-800-548-TALK. We take your your questions, your texts on anything that has to do with life, like this question, which I'm going to repeat here. My husband wants you to tell us why I can't have just one drink at night. I start with one, then end up with five, six, seven before I go to bed. He can't understand why I just can't drink socially. So there's a bunch of reasons for alcoholism. Number one, there's and there's different theories, right? Number one is the whole allergy theory. The allergy theory, which means that the minute with certain people that might be, quote unquote, allergic to alcohol, the minute alcohol is ingested, that there's a trigger, a craving for more. Number two, the genetic theory that if you have a genetic propensity for alcoholism and alcohol is ingested, a switch triggers the gene for alcoholism and it allows you or causes you, as in the allergy theory, to crave more. And number three, the emotional response to alcohol. We use it to submerge emotions, fear, insecurity, resentments, and more. 
And so the, with the emotional theory is that a person is worried, anxious, frustrated, bored, mad, whatever it might be, and they have a drink, and all of a sudden that emotion is squashed, and they go, oh, my God, I'm not even thinking about the pressure at work. I think I'll have another, then I'll have another, then I'll have another. So those are three different theories for alcoholism. And, um, you know, and then the question that comes out of this, too, is that if someone does have alcoholic tendencies or is an alcoholic, can they ever go back to drinking? And for a lot of people, the answer is no. A lot of people make a decision to get clean, get sober. They find out life is so much better without the, all the drama and chaos. And they decide to never go back. And then there's other people that will be clean for several years. They'll work a great program. I remember I worked with a woman in the early 90s. Helped her get clean for her serious. I mean, even though she was functioning, she was working and be, and she was able to hold jobs and and pay mortgages and all that kind of stuff. She was a pretty serious drinker. We got her clean for about eight years, and then she wanted to see if she could just casually drink. And that was, I think, about seven years ago that she decided that she wanted to just casually drink. And from then till today, she has a half a glass of wine every other Friday. That's it. And she has contacted me regularly saying, David, you know, it's amazing. I have a half a glass. I have no need for more. It's every other week. And some people may be able to do that. A lot of people choose to stay clean for the rest of their existence. So there's the answer to your question, why your husband wants to know, uh, you know, if you have to go to four, five, six, seven, eight drinks a night, that's a pretty serious issue that's going to create chaos, not only within your relationship, but your body down the road as well. one 800 548-TALK, 1-800-548-TALK. When the texts come in like this one I'm going to read to you, it's really quite fascinating. People have this belief system that if you're confident you could be cocky or arrogant, there's a big difference between being cocky or confident and arrogant. So here it is. On last week's show, you said that you feel, David, that you have no competition in radio. Isn't that being cocky and arrogant? I love it. No. It's not being cocky and arrogant. It's just the truth. I have no competition. For 23 years, we have been America's positive radio talk show. Are there other people that do the type of work we do? Yeah. Is there anyone that's been around as long as we have? No. Not just doing pure positive talk? No. And and do we feel there's no... Why do I feel there's no competition? Because just like I hope you feel this way. I hope everyone listening to this show feels that whatever your calling is, whatever your work is... That no one could do it like you do. Whether you're working in media, whether you're working at a a department store, a convenience store, whether you're working in management as an attorney, as a doctor, as a whatever, you should really feel that your unique fingerprint, your unique approach to your work makes you, first of all, unstoppable, and secondly, that there's no competition. Now, I will say this, is that to have this attitude, you have to continue to grow. You have to be able to evaluate yourself. You have to continue to do your own personal growth work to stay number one in your field, number one in the way that you do it. You can't just rest on your laurels. We push ourselves. As I've mentioned on this show many times, I have coaches that I work with, business coaches. I've had spiritual coaches in the past, relationship coaches in the past. So I continue to push myself to be the very best, but there's no competition for me in the world of radio or as a motivational speaker or as an author or as a coach. I don't think that there's anyone because of the uniqueness that I bring to this world. And I want you to feel the same way. This isn't something that just someone who's on radio can say or does the work I do. You, I want you to feel that way. And one of the greatest things that you can do to make sure you're on top of your game 
is to surround yourself with people who are exceptional. And if you surround yourself with people that are better than you, maybe make more money or have a better relationship, as you surround yourself with people that are better than you, you get better. And then you start to feel more confident. And then you can say to the people that ask you, do you have competition? You can say no. We, you know, in, in our book with Hay House, Slow Down, there's a chapter that we wrote on personal power. And we said those individuals that have the greatest amount of personal power feel there's no competition. And they don't look at competition as a threat. I never have looked at competition in any of the work I do as a threat. I will appreciate a really great radio host or a great motivational speaker. Hell yes. I'll champion them on. I'll talk about them. I'll tell them. I, th- I tell other people I think they're great. But it has nothing to do with me. Does that make sense? one 800 548 talk 1-800-548-TALK. Text us during that. It's a great text, by the way. Thank you for sending it. I don't know if you sent it with a good intention <laughs> or not. You were trying to call me out, and I appreciate that, and we'd love to answer it. Our text is 941-266-7676. Hey, you're not going to want to miss my guest coming up, Keith Strop, founder of Normal, talking about marijuana rights, legalization of marijuana, medicinal marijuana. Is pot safe? I've got a billion questions to ask Keith. He's the founder, 1970. I wonder if he remembers that. (laughs) That's a marijuana joke. Uh, 1-800-548-TALK. 1-800-548-TALK. Our website, talkdavid.com. Check it out. Coming back with Keith in a minute. Let your friends know he's going to be here for you, too. Stay right there. You're tuned in to David Essel Live, America's positive radio show. Like us on Facebook and listen to hundreds of inspirational archive shows at talkdavid.com. Now here's your host, Mr. Motivation, David Essel. Oh, yeah, coast to coast for the past 23 years. Welcome to David Essel Live, America's positive radio talk show, broadcasting live out of Studio E in Los Angeles, California, 1-800-548-TALK. 1-800-548-TALK, text 941-266-7676, 941-266-7676. We are so blessed tonight to have Keith Strop with us, uh, Washington, D.C.-based attorney, founder of Normal, has appeared on shows like The O'Reilly Factor, Hannity and Combs, and now, of course, his greatest claim to fame <laughs> will be that he'll be able to say he was on David Essel's show. Oh, my Lord. Life can't get any better for Keith. I know he's feeling that right now. And he's the author of the book, It's Normal to Smoke Pot, 40-Year Fight for Marijuana Smokers' Rights. Keith, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. Nice to be with you. Yeah. Why you, in 1970, what happened in 1970 that triggered you to create a lobbying group for marijuana rights? Well, it was actually, you have to go back two years earlier. I graduated law school in 1968, and it was the height of the Vietnam War, and also it was the height of the anti-Vietnam War movement. Uh, and at that point, there were there was no lottery. So if you were a male and you were not a full-time student and you weren't 29 years old, you were drafted and sent to Vietnam. And, you know, unfortunately, as we look back now on Lyndon Johnson's legacy, we realize that he did all the good stuff with civil rights, but he also really kicked up that Vietnam War, and we lost 55,000 of my contemporaries at any event. Right. 
uh, it radicalized me. In other words, I, I challenged things that I never would have challenged. I think I would have gone to law school and probably gone back home and, and practiced law in a traditional manner. But I became radicalized because of the draft and the war. And in the process of that, uh, I, I'm sorry if I'm too long-winded here, but in the process, no. the National Lawyers Guild helped me get what was called a critical skills deferment. It's a crazy small provision in the Draft Act that if the work you're doing at home is so important that instead of going off to war, you get to stay home and do it. Well, I was working for a presidential commission. I just graduated from Georgetown Law School, and this commission called the National Commission on Product Safety had been formed. Well, as a result, the next two years, instead of getting my ass shot off in Vietnam, uh, I worked for around Ralph Nader, and I got uh, familiar with this whole concept a public interest law where you spend your time and energy and your legal skills to try to impact public policy in a favorable manner uh, rather than trying to help a client or get rich. So uh, by the time I uh, had finished the commission, I was 29 years old. I was too old to be drafted. So I, I wanted to do this thing of public interest law, but the issue that I was concerned with uh, was not product safety like Ralph, but it was uh, legalizing marijuana. I first smoked marijuana when I was a freshman at Georgetown Law School, but by the time I graduated, I had a number of friends who'd been arrested, so I was quite aware uh, of the impact it was having on my culture. Finally, it's there's legalization, and 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 I want to tell you, Keith, from my perspective, I I have in my work, my professional work, I have seen some massive benefits to the use of marijuana as a medicinal aid for certain diseases and conditions, which we'll get to later on in the interview. But but why do you think it's taken so long? We have the state of Colorado, the state of Washington now legalized. Why do you think it's taken so long? Well, when you go back and look at the uh, Gallup poll over the years, there's been a number of national polling firms who've covered this issue, but the one that's most interesting is if you go all the way back to 1969, that's the first year that Gallup even thought to ask the question of should should we legalize marijuana up to then, apparently it wasn't a serious enough issue to even poll on. Well, at any event, a year before we started normal, there were only 12% of Americans who agreed with us, 88% were opposed. So in some ways, the reason it took so long is that we were digging out of a real hole of misinformation and prejudice, uh, you know, all through the reefer madness era. People, mostly, frankly, at my age, my generation, um, they thought marijuana was just this terribly dangerous drug that led people down a path towards, you know, they'd end up being heroin addicts and dying in a back alley or something. It was a, a terrible impression, and it took us a long time to overcome that. But when you look at the Gallup polls, it's interesting we started picking up support in a significant way in about 1990, and we've been gaining ever since. And for the last three years, we have something like 58% now, the American public nationwide, who say not that they're pro-marijuana, but they're anti-prohibition. They want to end marijuana prohibition. They want to legalize and regulate marijuana like we did alcohol. So uh, that's a long answer to say that I think why it's taken us so long is we almost had to outlive our opponents. 
You know, we, mm. we were re-educating mm-hmm. people. We were overcoming stereotypes, letting people know that marijuana smokers are also good neighbors. You know, you don't have to fear. Right, it. right, uh, if right. If we relax in the evening uh, by smoking a joint instead of drinking a, a glass of wine, I happen to do both. So, but I mean, either way, there, there's nothing about that that should frighten you at all. Otherwise, we're just <laughs> average, hardworking people. Um, what, what what do you I mean, the, the Obama quote in USA Today that he felt and this is about 30 days ago that he felt that smoking marijuana was safer than alcohol. That had to be a huge feather in your organization's cap, right? Well, you know what it is. A, a lot of people expected more of Obama than was realistic. I, I've been lived in Washington now 48 years. I came out here in 65 to go to law school. So uh, I feel like a sort of a Washington insider in the sense that I know that if you live outside of Washington and you elect a president or, you know, you're part of a coalition, you expect that he's going to change the world. Well, the truth is, presidents certainly have an impact, but if they have a significant impact on contentious issues, it's usually the first couple to three years of their second term when they're not up for re-election. And Obama has done terrific stuff in his second term. Uh, A lot of our folks were very disappointed in the first term that he was paying attention to other issues. But my goodness, the president has an incredible number of important issues he has to deal with. So I'm more realistic. But the thing that he's done that's been so important in the second term, he has allowed both Colorado and Washington to fully implement their state marijuana legalization programs without attempting to challenge them on the basis that they are a potential conflict with federal law. In fact, I'd say it's more than potential. (laughs) Marijuana is still illegal under federal law. Well, by allowing uh, our side to do that, he is letting us demonstrate that you can legalize marijuana in a responsible manner, and uh, we will be forever, I think, indebted to him. I I think there's no turning back, in other words. By the time Mm -hmm. He's out of office, even if the Republicans should win next time. Uh, the experience in those two states will be so overwhelmingly more favorable than prohibition that I can't imagine uh, any state is not going to want to get on board. And in addition, they're going to raise enormous amounts of money. Colorado thinks they'll raise at least $100 million in taxes this year for right. recreational marijuana. In Washington, right. they're just about to start. Uh, so, you know, we assume Washington will probably be about the same as Colorado once they're up and running. Yeah. Those are big bucks to these states. So uh, just as gambling, remember, when I was young, you could only legally gamble in New Jersey. Uh, or no, frankly, in Nevada, and then later Nevada, in New Jersey. Right. Yeah, right. but now you can gamble one form or another in almost every state in the country. They've overcome their sense of immorality that used to be attached, with, attached to gambling because they realize, come on, you can make a lot of money. You don't have to raise taxes. Right. You can raise it here. Well, the same thing is true with marijuana. We've been raising our hand for 30, 40 years saying, please, taxes, you know, legalize it. But sure. only, only recently has that begun to take hold. And so I think more and more you're going to hear less aversion to marijuana on moral grounds and more an argument about, uh, you know, how much money we can make and where should we mm. spend that money. You know, it's, it's sort of like a sin tax. It's very similar yeah. to gambling. Keith, I'm going to ask you to hang right in there. We're going to go to a quick break. We're going to come back. Keith Strop is my guest, uh, Washington-based D.C. attorney, uh, founder of Normal. And we're going to talk about how do we... In regards to marijuana, how do we know that it's safe? And what about that whole concept of it being a gateway drug? And so many more questions for Keith. I'm David Essel. TalkDavid.com. Stay right there.
You're tuned in to David Essel Alive, America's positive radio show. Like us on Facebook and listen to hundreds of inspirational archive shows at talkdavid.com. Now here's your host, Mr. Motivation, David Essel. Ah, coast to coast every Saturday for the past 23 years, 6 to 9 Eastern, 3 to 6 Pacific. Our toll-free number if you want to get in on the conversation with Keith Strop, who's the founder of Normal. Author of the book, It's Normal to Smoke Pot, 40-Year Fight for Marijuana Smokers' Rights, 1-800-548-TALK, 1-800-548-TALK. If you want to text us, 941. We do have uh, several texts coming in regarding this topic that I'll share with our guests. 941-266-7676. Keith, here's a a text that came in. Parents of a 17-year-old boy. Uh, we have heard often about pot being a gateway drug, and it actually was for his father, who went on to use multiple drugs and struggled with alcohol. Could you give us your opinion on this topic? Keith, go ahead. Well, I think uh, traditionally, back in the uh, in the early years of normal, in the 70s and 80s, that was primarily the, the argument we heard. In other words, the fear was that smoking a joint now and then may not be so bad, but that, unfortunately, their their expectation was you would continue to graduate on to more dangerous drugs and ending up being a heroin addict or something like that. Uh, Now, the reality has has shown over time that, for example, 50% of all high school seniors have, have experimented with marijuana by the time they graduate high school, and that's been true for 20 years or so. The government does surveys. And yet almost all of them have gone on and had successful lives. They haven't been heroin addicts. They've gone to college. They've raised families. They've contributed to the community. So there's no epidemiological evidence to support that. You have this incredible increase in marijuana smoking, yet uh, most of them don't use any other drugs. Now, here's really the fallacy in the argument. It's not surprising that by the time someone is using heroin, they probably used most other drugs first, and that certainly includes cocaine, it includes alcohol, it includes tobacco, and it includes marijuana. For most of them, they used alcohol or tobacco first, marijuana third. This is based on the government's data. And heroin someplace way down the road after they had run out of, you know. And today, I think, by the way, Oxycontin and those synthetic opiates play a role. Yes. So I'm sympathetic, of course, to someone who ends up uh, addicted to any of those drugs. It, it's a hideous thing to be addicted. But again, all we're saying is not that everybody should smoke pot. It is that don't treat marijuana smokers like criminals. And if someone gets in over their head with any drug, but certainly marijuana too, let's find out ways to get them some help. But locking them up and treating them like a criminal honestly doesn't do that. It only hurts them more. And um, it's a racial policy. I mean, the, the, it's, it's literally the ACLU in the last year has come out with data based on marijuana arrests all around the country. And on average, blacks and whites smoke marijuana at roughly the same rate. It's 14% overall, a little higher on the east and west coast, a little lower in the Midwest and the south. But in terms of arrests, they're anywhere from three times to eight times higher 
for blacks than they are right. for whites. So right. it ends up, even though I don't think that was the intention, it ends up that these are the new Jim Crow laws. So we're not asking everyone to be pro-marijuana. All we're saying is uh, join with us to recognize that prohibition doesn't work, whether it's alcohol or marijuana. And then once we get past that and we stopped arresting 750,000 Americans a year on marijuana charges, then we can deal with some of these other issues I think mm-hmm. we need to deal with intelligently. We, they're clearly right now appears to be a kind of a, a new heroin problem. Every seems to me on the news I keep seeing right. middle-class people using heroin. I, I don't right. know what that's about, and I would love to help stop it. I mean, I've, I've been a marijuana smoker for 48 years, and I've never even seen heroin. You know, I'm mm-hmm. a middle-class lawyer. Where the hell would I see heroin? <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, you know what, Keith? What, uh, and because I work in addiction recovery, I can tell you one of the reasons we're seeing an increase in heroin use is that a lot of these people, either through playtime with opiates such as Oxycontin and Roxycodone, yeah. Yeah, yeah, or... Yeah or because of um, injuries that they got hooked on those, they, they then try to buy street, ver- or not street version, but you know um, prescription drugs off the street, and they're finding the cost of the opiate, of the roxycodone, off of the charts compared to heroin, and the high is the same. You know, I'm hearing that. I, I literally have heard that from a number of sources. Yes. Uh, I'm so saddened by that. I don't like yes. even the pharmaceuticals. I mean, frankly, uh, oxycodone, all of those drugs are vastly overprescribed. I think all of us recognize yes. that. So, Absolutely. So I would like to cut back on those, but for Christ's sake, at least you're not injecting yourself. You know, you're yes. taking a pill. So, yeah. uh, Jesus, we have to do something to communicate with credibility to people who are using those drugs innocently. I mean, innocently, and they don't know they're about to kill themselves or they have the risk of doing it, that don't do that. You're taking more risk than you intend to take. Absolutely. Hey, Keith, um, you know, I mentioned before, I want to see what your take is and Normal's take is on medicinal benefits of marijuana. In our work in the past 23 years, we have found now with our clients in Colorado, especially that I work with one on one, that we're insomniacs who have never been able to sleep before. They're utilizing marijuana to actually sleep through the night. People with fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, migraines. These are just regular, normal people struggling for 20 or 30 years. Now, because they happen to live in the state of Colorado and it's legal, they're able to see relief that they couldn't find with any prescription drugs at all. What is normal's response or what's normal's take on medicinal marijuana? Well, first off, by the way, I apologize because I'm talking to you from my home and my dog is barking in the background. (laughs) I'll try to get where it's not quite so prominent. Uh, First off, you know, I I think it is is terribly important that we keep the medical use of marijuana uh, intellectually and in our minds uh, for policymaking purposes separate from the recreational use. uh, seriously ill patients, like MS patients, I, for example, I, I started having an occasional seizure when I was 65 years old. Well, it turns out that uh, going back 100 years or more, one of the most effective anti-seizure medications is actually marijuana. And as Sanja Grupa and the CNN crowd have discovered regarding the uh, Dravet syndrome children, uh, high CBD marijuana in particular seems to be far more effective than any of the pharmaceutical drugs. So we should treat the patient's need, put them at the front of the line. Um, 
obviously, if a seriously ill patient can benefit from the use of medical marijuana, then let's make it available to them. Whatever right. changes in the law we need to do, and I, it's almost difficult to think anyone would argue against that. The public polling is somewhere around 80% nationwide agree with sure. that now. Now, sure. beyond that, I will tell you, I think inevitably whatever medical law you come up with, there will be some people who would benefit in a traditionally medical manner from marijuana, but they won't be covered because the laws have certain restrictions. I understand that. They're trying to avoid uh, diversion and things like that. The only way I think patients will have marijuana in every situation in which it would help them is if we simply legalize marijuana for all adults. Uh, Our position at Normal has always been it's none of the government's business whether we smoke or why we smoke. In other words, that's a personal decision. It's really only incidentally about marijuana. You don't want the government coming into your house to know what uh, books you read or what music you listen to or how you conduct yourself in the bedroom or whether you smoke marijuana or drink alcohol when you relax in the evening. That's just not the government's business. And that's all we're saying. Now, uh, clearly, there are lots of people in Colorado and other places, Washington, uh, who enjoy smoking marijuana, and so do I. I guarantee you, I don't take it because it's a medicine, even though it probably helps uh, with my seizures. Uh, I've been right. smoking marijuana for 48 years simply because I enjoy smoking it. Do so you ever I, get, are you ever concerned, Keith, that, that you know, you're on a nationally syndicated radio show right now that people could be listening to you and go, wait a minute, he's in Washington, D.C., that's illegal. <laughs> well, I mean, I do. On the other hand, keep in mind, I'm a 70-year-old lawyer. I've been smoking marijuana for 48 years, and so I'm not easily intimidated. Now, by that, I don't mean to suggest that I blow smoke in their face. I don't. I mean, I, you know, I try to lead an ordinary life, and I limit my smoking to recreational times, you know, when I'm going to a party or having friends over, or frankly, when I'm sitting watching the news at night. I usually pour a glass of wine and roll a joint. <laughs> right. <laughs> so there's so so if you got a knock on the door, could they actually come in? Could they come in and say, "We heard you on this show. We know you have pot here, and you're in trouble." No, because I didn't say that. If you notice, in other words, a pro- probable cause requirement would be that they have probable cause to believe that I have marijuana in the house right now. And I certainly okay. haven't said anything to suggest that. Now, <laughs> yeah, I admit that I'm, I admit that I'm trimming around the edges. <laughs> That's too funny. Hey, hey, Keith, we've got to go to another quick break. We've got more text coming in for questions for Keith's drop. I'm loving this interview, but I knew I would. The founder of Normal, author of the book, It's Normal to Smoke Pot. We're going to come back with Keith and talk about quality, talk about THC content increasing dramatically since the 70s. Is that a concern? Is that a concern for him and the organization? Oh, my gosh. So much more to go over here. You're tuned in to America's Positive Radio Talk Show. I'm David Essel. Our website, talkdavid.com. Normal's website is normal.org. Stay there. You're tuned in to David Essel Alive, America's positive radio show. Like us on Facebook and listen to hundreds of inspirational archive shows at talkdavid.com. Now here's your host, Mr. Motivation, David Essel. 
Coast to coast every Saturday, 6 to 9 Eastern, 3 to 6 Pacific. Hey, guys. Welcome aboard. If you have a, a thought or a question, call us 800-548-TALK, 1-800-548-TALK. Text us 941-266-7676, My guest, Keith Strop, founder of Normal, author of It's Normal to Smoke Pot, 40-Year Fight for Marijuana Smokers' Rights. Um, Keith, we got more text coming in. One of them it was, I just referred to it prior to the break, is that the THC content I've heard is much, much higher in marijuana than it was in the 70s. Does this concern your guest at all? Well, first I would say it's not much, much higher. It is true that the quality of most homegrown marijuana, and that's what most marijuana smoked in America today, is grown in America, and it's among the best quality marijuana grown in the world. Um, and it's almost all grown indoors, and the Grow America movement has developed techniques so that it's true. They develop different strains of marijuana, and, for example, some of the strains that seem to help uh, for patients seem to be high in, in cannabidiol or CBD strain. Uh, some of the strains that most smokers or recreational smokers like are high in the THC, the tetrahydrocannabinol. So we've had some enormous uh, creative people who have, in fact, come up with all kinds of varieties on marijuana that weren't available, you know, not, uh, not too long ago. But the goal of smoking marijuana is simply to alter your consciousness slightly. It's not to become inebriated where you fall on the sofa and fall asleep. That's not very much fun. I mean, everyone may do that once, but I bet you after they do it, they say, gee, I wish I would have not taken so much and I would have enjoyed the evening. It's the same with alcohol. You don't drink alcohol and drink as much as you can, or if you do, you're going to pass out and get sick and have a bad experience. Right. Just as alcohol drinkers drink a lot less whiskey, for example, than they drink beer or wine, uh, marijuana smokers know the difference between high-grade marijuana and mediocre marijuana, and they simply use less of it because the goal is not to get... Uh, knocked out of your mind where you don't know what you're doing. The goal is to uh, back up a half a step in the same way that I think consciousness raising people that do yoga, people that uh, there are all kinds of ways to alter your consciousness, but you're not trying to get totally out of touch. You just want to be a little bit off the regular consciousness, and I think marijuana does that for most of us. And strong marijuana just means you don't use as much of it. Keith, here's another question. States where it's not legalized, how do we know the quality of the pot, good pot versus bad pot versus pot that may be treated with some other form of a drug? Well, by the way, uh, that is, in fact, the problem with prohibition is that you have no way to have quality control. Normal has always been a consumer-focused lobby. In other words, we represent marijuana smokers, the consumers in this case. We don't represent the industry. We're friends with people in the industry, and I appreciate all those new jobs that are being created in Colorado and Washington. And, uh, it's wonderful to see the uh, entrepreneurs that are attracted to those areas to invest their capital. But Normal's focus is actually for marijuana smokers. And the problem with the black market, which means, you know, 48 states, if you're buying marijuana, right. you're still dealing with the black market, is you don't have quality control. There's no way to insist that the dealer goes to a laboratory and have his marijuana inspected. Now, in Colorado and right. Washington, they do have to do that. You understand? That's part of gotcha. the regulation. So uh, that question is very valid. It's always been risky to buy marijuana on the black market, and the only reason we did it 
was it was the only market we had. And so we sort of developed people we trusted. Sometimes I suppose people were misled, but I'll be honest. I, you know, I've been smoking for almost five decades, and I don't think I've ever come across marijuana that's been laced with something. I know that's always been a concern, and one of right. the demands normal makes is that in any legalization state, absolutely, I want the marijuana tested so that it has no moles and no pesticides, and I want to know the THC level and the CBD level at least, maybe even some of the terpenes. Uh, but we, we can't do that when you're dealing with the black market. So I say to my friends and colleagues that are still out there, hang on. I think the movement is moving very quickly, gaining momentum. I think within five years we might have most states legalized. Wow. Wow. Keith, we've got two minutes left. This last question, um, does your guest know what states are on the cusp of legalization? Yes. Uh, I would tell you that uh, in 2014, you know, coming up uh, – in Alaska in August, they're actually having a vote in, during their primary, but the surveys seem to indicate this is going to pass in Alaska, and it's a full legalization state. And then um, in November, um, we, we expect we're going to have an initiative on the Oregon ballot, although that, too, has been uh, challenged by someone in court, so we're waiting for a court decision. But the, right. the, the survey data shows that in both states, uh, the initiative has far more than majority support. So I think we will add Oregon and Alaska uh, this year, and I think by 2016 you'll probably add Massachusetts to that, hopefully, I think almost certainly, California. Uh, And frankly, I think most states that are adjacent to either Washington or Colorado, they're going to see all this tax money their citizens are driving across the state line and spending in Colorado. Uh, I think right. I think you're going to see some of those states decide, you know, it's time for us to do the same thing. So I think we're very close to winning the whole country. But I think by 2016, we'll add five more states probably. Well, and so you think, when is it that you think that most states will be legalized with well, marijuana? Well, I would tell you this. I think we'll stop arresting smokers, you know, just ordinary people with a less than an ounce or something, like Maryland right. this, this week did. They decriminalized marijuana. I think within five years we will stop wow. arresting individual smokers all across the country, including the Deep South and the Midwest. Now, uh, like alcohol, when we ended Prohibition, we didn't immediately have every state legalize alcohol. A lot of states allowed each county to make their own decision, and some counties in Alabama and Mississippi and Arkansas, uh, they didn't have legal alcohol, uh, maybe still don't. You, you, what I remember, yes. you used to have to pay two bucks to say you joined a club, so he could go indoors, right. and then they served alcohol to their private members, you know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I think you're uh, going to see the same kind of uh, a little bit of chaotic. You're going to have a lot of states experimenting with different models, but that's the deal with the federal system. Uh, the states are supposed to be laboratories. You experiment, you figure out what works and what doesn't, and I don't think either the Colorado model or the Washington will end up being the one that we think is the best. I think both of them are incredibly important because they kind of changed the world's political thinking. But uh, we will learn to do things better. And so I'm looking forward to the next five years. We're, uh, we're, We're riding a lot of public support, and I want to remind people, it's not public support that's pro pot. It's public support that's anti prohibition. And so we need to keep that in mind as we move forward. We have to do it responsibly. We've been talking with Keith Strop, founder of Normal, author of the book, It's Normal to Smoke Pot, 40-Year Fight for Marijuana Smokers' Rights. 
Keith, wonderful to have you on. I'm so glad you had this much time for us. I know you've opened up a lot of eyes, and we'll look forward to having another conversation as the rules change. (laughs) My pleasure. Thank you for calling. Okay. Bye-bye now. Our toll-free number, 1-800-548-TALK, 1-800-548-TALK. Text us any questions during the show, 941-266-7676. We're getting to as many of your texts as we always do, 941-266-7676. Coming up, my friend Bernie Siegel. Dr. Bernie Siegel's coming back, author of the book, The Art of Healing. We're going to talk about near-death experiences. Are they real? We've already got texts coming in from people who have experienced these things. We're going to get the official answer from Bernie Siegel. If we have time, we're going to talk about uh, uh, near-death experiences and so much more. I'm David Essel. Stay there. Are you stuck in life? Just not happy with your body, income, or love life? I'm David Essel, XM Radio host and author of the new free book, The Power of Focus, at TalkDavid.com. We're giving away 1 million copies of The Power of Focus, and it's free at TalkDavid.com. You deserve your desires. Get your free book, The Power of Focus, today at TalkDavid.com. For 21 years, positive talk radio equals David Essel Alive. Listen on XM 168 every Saturday, 6 to 9 Eastern, 3 to 6 Pacific. 